Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. When we complete a piece of writing, we know it's not really complete. We need to edit it, wordsmith it, take it to the next level. While most of this is intuitive work, there are some key areas that writers tend to overlook when reviewing their manuscript. With years of experience in editing, Dave and I have identified key areas writers, especially new writers, tend to overlook in the editing process. Reviewing your manuscript is more than just cleaning up grammar. It has to do with flow, cadence, clarity, specificity, and conveying ideas in fresh ways. Today, we are going to offer seven questions that you should be asking yourself as you review your manuscript. But before we get started with the first question, Dave, I think it's time for us to bring back where we've made progress. And since we haven't done it for a very long time, we've surely made progress in many areas. But where have you recently made progress? I'm feeling great that I'm back in a good reading rhythm. So I am just finishing up listening to The Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. I read that book maybe a couple times many years ago, but I wanted to listen to it. And man, I just have enjoyed it. It's so dark. It is so dark. And then I'm about an eighth done with the book, Catherine the Great by Robert Massey. It's a big historical biography of, of this great leader. And then I'm also starting to reread Rick Bass's book, The The Wild Marsh, Four Seasons at Home in Montana. I've read pretty much, I think, everything that Rick Bass has written. There might be a few short stories of his that I haven't read, but I've read his entire Uber, I think, for the most part. But this one was so good. The language is great. His observations are great. It's about nature, but it's in his, it's living in Northwest Montana. So that's my progress is my reading. I'm so curious, what drew you to read about Catherine the Great? Was this a book recommendation from somebody or what drew you to the content? You know, it was my, it was a fly fishing trip with a friend who's a German that I went on in March and he was telling me about the book. And then I realized under Catherine the Great, she offered free land and no military service to uh, many of the Germans. And they came from Germany or parts of Germany and moved into what is Southern Ukraine and Moldova now. And so they set up these enclaves, these Lutheran and Mennonite enclaves and farmed. And they were there for about a generation, generation and a half. And then they left. And fortunately, they left. They left in like, mine left in 1906 and came to the US. So I wanted to, when I heard about the book, I thought, I've got to pick that thing up and learn more about my history. So that's why I picked it up. So does it keep your attention? What's one observation you've made about biographies such as this? It's not boring history. He tells stories as he's writing it. He tells the story about Catherine the Great. Where do you think he did his research? Was it primary research, like from letters and 
news documents of the day? Like where did he do his research for the book? Do you know? I'm I don't, but what's real interesting is that when you're writing historical, it's not historical fiction, it's historical, it's a biography, right? You don't have dialogue. So you you don't have a lot of dialogue. So you you have to be really careful with that because it becomes almost fiction, right? It becomes a historical fiction. And so his comes from letters, his comes from documents. And it's, you know, Catherine wrote her own uh, memoirs. And so it's a lot of documentation. So he might use a little bit of dialogue that there's a sense every so often he'll use some dialogue. I thought, did they actually say that? Was that part of some document? (laughs) But enough about me. So how about you? Where are you making progress? So for me, I think it's more of an emotional sense of progress. I tend to go really hardcore in one of my hobbies of life, which I've talked about here, and that's antiquing and sourcing vintage for my my shop at Warehouse 55. And especially during the spring and summer, I just go, 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 because it's flea market season. But this weekend after doing a sale, which I actually sold at, and then I went to a flea market on Sunday morning, I'm like, I am so burnt out and I need to not think about antiques or vintage and not think about my jobby, which is McGillicuddy selling vintage and do something that's refreshing, which was for me gardening. And that's something new that I'm just starting to really enjoy. So I spent like four or five hours that flew by just outside planting and moving things around and it really refreshed me. So it's just a good reminder to do something different when you're burnt out with one particular thing and you recharge in a really fresh way. So that's my progress is listening to myself and what I really need. I think it's helpful for everyone listening because you do often will get burned out doing something like something that you even love, which is your vintage, right? But when you're tired like that, is it hard to go and do something like that because you're already tired? So you have to kind of fight through that? Yeah, it's like a different kind of tired, right? For me, I'm just right now with selling vintage is a really hard time to sell vintage because the prices are inflated. We've talked about this a little bit in our conversations you and I, Dave, have. And so it's just exhausting trying to find the merchandise. So it's not just physically exhausting in the sense that I'm walking a lot of miles at flea markets and things like that and lugging around heavy stuff, but it's emotionally exhausting trying to find those items that I think will resell. And it's like this mental gymnastics, like if I buy it for this, can I sell it for this and will it sell? And so for me, it's just become mentally exhausting. And so I knew that I needed to do something where I could free myself from thinking And I just, you know, gardening, getting your hands dirty and being physical was a way to do that. And it was a different kind of physical than, you know, walking the flea market or, you know, hauling a piece of furniture to the, to the car. So enough about us. This is really about writers out there, right? We are here to help you become better writers. When you look to publish your work, you want it to be the best that it possibly can be. And as I said, in our intro There are some things that new writers especially just aren't aware of in their writing. And so today we're going to offer seven questions to help you dig deep into your manuscript and try to improve it. And the first question is this, can I eliminate instances of passive voice? So first you have to understand what passive voice is before you can understand why passive voice might be hurting your writing. So I'll give a simple definition and then Dave, maybe you can give an example. A simple definition of passive voice is this. Passive voice produces a sentence in which the subject receives an action instead of the active voice, which produces a sentence in which the subject performs an action. 
I'll say that again, and then Dave will give an example. Passive voice produces a sentence in which the subject receives an action instead of an active voice, which produces a sentence in which the subject performs an action. Passive voice tends to be less direct and wordy. And Dave, you give the examples. So a good example of this is the ball is being chased by the dog. So that is a good example of a passive voice. The use of the passive voice is being chased. And so a better way to do it simply is the dog chased the ball. I mean, it's as simple as that. Think about the words that you eliminate. One of the good things about editing and the important things about editing is that you always want to write less words as opposed to more words. In other words, if you can say something in fewer words, you need to do so. And that is when you advocate for the reader. So in this, you're, you're losing about three or four words. And so a good example, again, the ball is being chased by the dog. The active is the dog chased or chases the ball. It's really important. Another one is the visitor was stopped by the security guard. You're probably seeing a pattern here. The passive often has the by the security guard. The visitor was stopped by the security guard. A better way to say it simply is the security guard stopped the intruder. So you kind of have to know the difference between a subject and an object, but there are some key ways to identify it. And it's usually... It's the form of the verb to be and the past participle of another verb, like is eaten, are preferred, was chosen, were stolen. So passive sentences often include a by clause noting who did the action. So if you can get rid of that and put the subject to the front of the sentence, it's going to make a more active sentence. So the problem with too much passive voice, Dave, is what? Your writing loses energy. And so just, just think of the phrase, the dog chased the ball. The dog chased the ball. Five words, and it's action. The ball is being chased by the dog. That's eight words. And it, 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 it makes your writing sluggish. All new writers have to wrestle with this. And if you have never been edited by someone, it would be good for you to find someone who can recognize the passive voice and challenge you on all the passive voices in your writing. I think we're trained inadvertently to use passive voice when we are taught how to write research papers because we want this detached, impersonal, objective point of view. And so you often fall into a passive voice when you are doing those research papers, especially when you're younger and you're an unsophisticated writer. And so you you learn these patterns early on as a writer and they're really difficult to undo and to identify. So again, yes, as Dave said, find somebody to help you identify it. Go back and listen to this section again. And we have a few tips that we give here to help you identify it as well. Of course, there are always exceptions to the rule, Dave. And there are times when you might strategically use a passive voice. And what are some of those instances? Imagine if you're writing a novel and you're writing about a person who's being victimized. So that action is happening to her. But if you're writing it from her perspective, if you're, let's say it's a woman and she is being beat, beaten by her husband who's abusing her, you know, you might want to make some of those verbs passive. 
because it's something that's happening to the subject of your your novel, right? Right. So rather than Ron beat his wife, it would be Melanie was being beaten by her husband. Ron. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. Because it shows passivity in a sense. Right. Now it doesn't show agency, but it shows passivity. So there are definitely times that the past. So it's not like you eliminate every passive voice. It's not like it's an incorrect, grammatically incorrect. It's it's, it's stylistically incorrect most of the times. All right. So that is question number one that we recommend you ask yourself is, can I eliminate instances of passive voice? The second question that we recommend you asking is, do I rely on the same word so much and not push for a fresh way of saying something? And we all struggle with this. Dave, I'll ask you later on what if you have a word that you struggle with, but we use some words as a crutch because it's just easier to keep the flow of writing going by using a word that we're comfortable using. But often those words have no meaning to them because we use it so loosely and vaguely and they become empty of meaning. So for instance, I frequently use the word whimsical. It's just a word that shows up in my writing. And I started to think about all the times that I use it and how it absolutely does not show the reader anything when I'm, when I'm describing something as whimsical. You kind of get the idea that it's probably playful, but what does playful look like? Or just whatever whimsical comes to mind, it, it could mean a million different things for the, the reader, depending on who they are. And so, so for instance, I could say the flower was whimsical amidst the hedges of boxwoods. And you kind of get this idea that whimsical is an opposition to the structure of he- the hedges of boxwoods. So you see they're probably free form and a little bit flowy and maybe a little bendy. And so, but I don't really tell you what they look like. You have to imagine that for yourself. And so what I'm, what am I really trying to say? And so I started to think of a whimsical flower, which for me is like a poppy. And I started to think, okay, if I were to describe the whimsy of a poppy, I would say the petals were the color of cantaloupe. The stem was both stringy and prickly, bendy, but at attention to the sun, its petals crinkly like grandma's hand. Or I might say caged by boxwoods, the flowers resisted being tamed. They rioted, they danced, bending and swaying. So that would be a much more descriptive way of of describing whimsical without using the word whimsical. So Dave, do you have any words that you rely on as a crutch in your own writing? Well, let me just follow up on that. So again, the problem is not so much the word whimsical. It's if you're writing an extended narrative, let's say you're writing a memoir, or you're writing even a nonfiction piece. And in the course of a thousand words, you're, you're using this three times, it becomes a problem because it means that you're not working hard enough to explain what you just did, what it really means. And what I love about what you did is that you, I mean, your phrase here, caged by boxwoods, the flower resisted being tamed, it rioted, it danced, bending and swaying. You start to then describe what you're seeing And all of a sudden, you've just elevated your writing in a really, really fresh way. So I love what you did. In my world, which is fly fishing, you know, one of my passions, there's often different ways that that people who write on fly fishing will describe casting your fly rod or hooking the fish is a phrase. I hooked the fish. The fish exploded as it, it rose to the surface. And so there's all these expressions like that that are, are good in and of themselves. And maybe using them once is fine. But if you're going on and you're writing, again, if I'm writing an extended blog post, let's say on 
describing what it's like when fish hit, hit the fly, then exploded, you can only use once. Right. You, know? you need to figure out other ways, like it sipped it. Sometimes they don't explode. They sip it. And even the word sip, when it's related to fly fishing, how the fish kind of near the surface, and sometimes they'll just sip the fly or mouth the fly or nudge the fly with their nose. It's amazing. But finding different ways to say it. And so when you're reviewing your manuscript, you need to ask yourself, am I using the same word too many times? And, and if so, why? And do what you did, which is so powerful, which is to start breaking it down and, and just saying specifically and describing what you, what you mean by that word. I edited a manuscript recently. It was a book manuscript. And this particular author, a great, a great writer, but she happened to use the word beautiful at least three times per chapter, sometimes many more than that. And it became a little bit burdensome for a reader because you, you didn't really know what she meant by beautiful because it was being overused. And how could beautiful mean the same thing in this instance as that instance and as that instance? And so it became kind of this junk drawer term. And so, again, that's another example of a of, of word that somebody uses and probably isn't even aware that they're overusing it. So I bet you have some of those if you're listening to this podcast, and it's just good to be aware of that. All right. Question number three, am I partial to a certain type of punctuation and do I get lazy with my sentence structure as a result? So again, this is something we're all guilty of, even seasoned writers. I tend to like a lot of compound sentences, longer sentences. Dave is completely opposite. But because I like compound sentences, yet I like the cadence of shorter sentences mixed in, I often use, probably overuse, if I'm completely honest, M dashes. They become this punctuation that I rely on just because I want to keep it moving. And I know there needs to be a pause. I'm like, okay, pause, I'll put in an M dash. But I'm not really thinking strategically about what the punctuation does. And punctuation is used to help the reader, to guide the reader to indicate where you want the reader to stop. You want them to sometimes have a hard stop with a period. An M dash that creates a little bit more continuity between the first idea and the second idea. A semicolon shows relationships between ideas without creating a complete hard stop. So there's so many varieties of punctuation out there that you can really use to add diversity to your writing. Dave, do you have a, a punctuation that you rely too much on? I don't know. I was I was thinking about this piece that I just did, you know, the, the one I completed about basically what the Grateful Dead taught me about marketing. There's a book out there called 19 Lessons from the Grateful Dead and how they were marketing pioneers. And so so I reviewed that and I I in a sense wrote a blog post, but I'm going to print that, print the publication, print the ideas, I should say, and then send it to all of our clients at, at the strategic marketing firm that I work. And I remember going back through it after I wrote it, it was before I sent it to you to Redline. And I went through it and I thought, my sentences are still all about the same length. They, I need to shorten them. So sometimes I fall into the pattern where I do have the ands. You think I don't like the compound sentence, <laughs> but it's because I tend to think in a compound sentence or else I'll have I, I do like the semicolon. I'll use the semicolon. So I have to be really careful that I don't use that all the time. And by the way, 
sometimes if you're a new writer, you feel a little bit overwhelmed with punctuate punctuation, but punctuation is just meant to help with cadence and to help accentuate things and help the reader pause. It's there's nothing more sophisticated than that. There, you look in the Old Testament, the Bible, the Old Testament, the original Hebrew had no punctuation, right? It was just there was no punctuation. You had to figure out where sentences began and, and where they stopped. And so there have been books that I've read, like Cormac McCarthy has one, I forget which one it is, where he uses no punctuation. Right. The road. Yeah, the road. He uses no punctuation. So the point here simply is that punctuation is meant to serve the you and help help you write your ideas in a clear way. So this 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 question is really important. Am I partial to a certain type of punctuation and get lazy and do the same thing all the time? If you're doing that, mix it up a little bit. It will it will really freshen up your writing. I'll give just one more example. Some people like to use short fragments and series in a parallel structure sort of way. So for instance, she wept, period, screamed, period, fell to the ground, period. And that actually has a kind of a nice cadence. But when you're doing that in every single paragraph, it gets really tiresome and it loses its effect. So if you're going to use a series like that, some sort of parallelism, you got to be sparse in using it because you want it to be effective. And when you overuse it, then you create an atmosphere in which you're just going to be ignored by your reader. So be strategic with your punctuation, be strategic with your sentence structure. It's all part of being a developing writer. That's just a great point. It's a great thing. It's a great reminder and a great thing to evaluate as you review your manuscript. In a sense, what we're talking about here is self-editing. And, and self-editing is just a really important piece of moving it on down the line in the process of ultimately publishing your work. All right. Question number four. Have I used a quote and provided enough context and or commentary? So we use quotes in our writing to augment an idea that we're grappling with in our writing or to add some texture or nuance. And sometimes we use it to anticipate a counter-argument or to raise a counter-argument and address that in our writing. There's a reason why we pick out the quotes that we include in our writing. It's not random. The problem becomes when you include the quote, but you don't set it up and you don't then after the quote or before the quote, talk about how this quote integrates with your overall thinking and idea. And so we talk a lot about burying research and that means where you, you don't you don't quote like a study or some academician who did a, a research project. You, you don't put that in the paragraph and you don't set up a quote necessarily with all that. But sometimes it's important to set up a quote with the person who actually said the quote, because maybe they are a leading expert on zoology and how, you know, how zoos affect animals who are not in their native land. And in that case, you would want to possibly include their name and their expertise because it would give credence to your own argument. So there's a time to acknowledge where the quote is coming from. And sometimes you need to bury it. Dave, do you have any insight in when you bury it and when you actually do give credit to the source in the running text? I think if now we're talking really here about nonfiction writing and uh, obviously you would put quotes and dialogue in your narrative nonfiction and memoir writing and fiction writing. But 
what I think you're talking about here is like in your nonfiction writing, sometimes we'll select a really good quote. And that is the reason. The only reason a, a quote should ever appear is if the author that you've selected from has said something in such a fresh way that you can't say it any better. It has to be fresh. So when you're looking for quotes to add in your nonfiction work, you're looking for journalistic quotes, quotes that are just like, whoa, did he really say that? And when you do that, you really add power to your writing. So if you've got a bunch of quotes and you're doing it, we did this back in high school and college just to pad it, to get to the word count that our teachers required, right? We all did this, but you don't do this for really good writing. The quote only goes in there. And so short also beats long, right? If you can use ellipsis to shorten it and that makes it, it makes it more powerful. So a good quote is journalistically interesting. It's saying something in a really fresh and creative way. Yeah, I love that, Dave. And it's usually a short phrase or one word that jumps out at you. Yes. And it's something then that word or that phrase that jumps out at you after you say the quote, somehow weave that into your writing and acknowledge the person who 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 raised it and who who articulated it and then try to weave it into your own thinking and your own writing and and build on it. So there's a way to really have some synergy with the quotes that you use. And don't just plop them in there and expect that the reader's going to expect to understand the way that your, your thinking is flowing because you're there to guide us. We want to understand your take on the quote. Quotes are really important, especially in, in nonfiction work because it's a supporting element. It often will illustrate something that you're saying. It will persuade people because it has power to it. And so shorter beats longer and really salient fresh, creative, something that's unique is why you would put that quote in there in the first place. So I don't know how many of you know who Malcolm Gladwell is, but he, he wrote the book, so many different books. Outliers is one of them. He was the one who came up with the idea of the 10,000 hours to, before you be, can become an expert in something. And now he has a podcast called Revisionist History. And yep, Revisionist History. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's a writer for The New Yorker. I mean, the guy's, I just love reading him. But he sends out an email newsletter. I think it's once every couple of weeks. Maybe it's every week. This week, he, he talked about Tucker Carlson. And some of you who may not know who he is, but he's on Fox News. He's very inflammatory. And, and, and so Gladwell is talking about how much influence he has. He had, he, you know, he influences up to 3 million listeners, which is a lot. But then he, he, he used an example from 1922, I believe it was, a different person who had also inflammatory comments, but affected 30 million people. So he had a reach, his reach, his audience reach was 30 million. And this is back when there's basically 100 million people in the U.S. So he was just juxtaposing the 30 million versus 100 million total people in the, in the U.S. versus 3 million, and there's what, 360 million people in the U.S.? His point simply was that Tucker Carlson doesn't have that much influence. But here's right. the point, is that he used this statistic that was so powerful that illustrated his point. And it, it's just a good example. You need to do that as well for your quotes. They need to be very powerful. and so. Don't just fill up your, your writing with these, uh, with padded 
words, right? Just to pad it out. If it's, if it's really good, put it in. If it's not, keep it out. Right. He used the statistic, which were the ratings as a jumping off point to explore this bigger idea. And I think that that's one of the tips that I want to offer people is use the quote as a jumping off point for you to elaborate on a, on an idea of your own. Don't get stuck in their, in their quote, which is what you do when you just plop it in there, but use it to extend your own thinking. Yeah. I think Malcolm Gladwell is a great example of that. Go read some Malcolm Gladwell. You'll not be disappointed if you do. All right. Our fifth question is, do I need to eliminate jargon and cliches? And much like using those words that we're prone to use over and over again, we all use jargon and cliches and cliches are easy to use without realizing you've used them because cliches have become cliches because of overuse. So we're all using them all the time and we often don't even know we're using them. And we often don't even realize the origin of the cliche. It's so funny to me, right? So many cliches are rooted in metaphor and imagery, but we don't even think about the origin. For instance, a tail between his knees, right? You don't think about, you just think, oh, that person is embarrassed or that person is ashamed, right? You don't think about, oh, that's a dog who maybe got into the trash and spilled trash all over the kitchen floor now and knows that he's in trouble and he has the tail between his, tail between his knees. So it's one of those things where cliches just lose their meaning over time because they're overused. This is really true in writing for business publications. And if you're in business of some sort, and it doesn't matter whether you're in human resources or finance, there are these industry words that are used. For many years, the word synergy was such a big word or a paradigm shift, right? Those are- Oh, geez, paradigm um, shift. (laughs) Paradigm shift, remember that? Everything was a paradigm shift, you know, and everything was- Package is a paradigm shift. Do you know so, what word I'm getting sick of, which is which, becoming almost cliche or jargon? It's deconstructing. We're deconstructing oh, all yes. of these systems and ways of thinking. And that's a word that is losing its power because it's being so overused. And I don't even know if most people, when they use the word deconstructing, if they really know where it comes from and what it actually means. They're using it in this loosey-goosey way. Well, that's a big thing among people of faith, right? It's right. A, in, in a sense, it's a so-called Christian word. People are deconstructing their faith, people that are kind of tired of religion, and they're tired of going to church, and now they're deconstructing. And then another word is they're composting. And people don't really understand what deconstruction really meant, right? It means to take something apart piece by piece, to deconstruct something. But it has technical meaning, and it started out really in the English lit departments and, and uh, in the early 70s, the phrase deconstruction, right? So it's much more complex of a word than people think of it is, and they think they know what it is. And when, if you're using something a lot, it means you really probably don't know what it means. So our advice t- to you is to identify your cliches as simple as one like a tail between his knees, get rid of those, whack those. Whack the jargon, whether it's synergy or deconstructionism, and try to think of a fresh way to actually express what you're trying to say. There are so many words and so many ways that you can put words together to say things in fresh ways. And we become lazy when we rely on these jargons and cliches. And one tip is to actually say, okay, if I'm going to use a tail between his knees, what am I trying to say in this moment? And then you start to do what I did in that previous example describing the flower. 
and you just start to describe what you are actually trying to say. And do, do any other metaphors come to mind, a fresh metaphor that you can be the author of? Or have you gained clarity on what you actually want to want to say? Because maybe you weren't entirely clear as you were writing this and you just relied on this cliche because it felt right and it was good enough. So and when you come to those cliches, really stop, pause, think about what you're trying to say and see if you can say it in a fresh way. All right. Question number six, do my stories have tension? And this is a big one. People tell stories or they think they're telling stories whether it's memoir, nonfiction, fiction, but often it's just a recounting of information. So Dave, remind us what we need to know about stories. So I just did a piece for our weekly email called Tipster. And this goes out Friday. It's free. It goes out to everyone. And you can just jump on the website if you want and a little widget pops up. You can sign up for it. You'll get the next one. But it was on flashbacks. And one of my biggest frustrations with flashbacks, and we use flashbacks in fiction writing, we use it in memoirs, we use it often even in writing nonfiction. If you're telling something and then you have to flash back to something to, to, to flesh out the story. The problem with flashbacks in general and, and a lot of stories in general is that nothing happens. They just recall something. I had this memory when my parents were gone one time and I felt really bad and, and, and blah, blah, blah. But there's no movement. There's no action. There's no scene. There's no dialogue. And that's the surest way to, le- to lose your reader. So this is such an important self-editing question, which is, okay, I have some anecdotes and stories in my writing here. And if I'm writing memoirs, you're doing it in the series of scenes. Or if you're writing fiction, are they, do they really have tension? Am I keeping the reader's interest? Is it interesting so that I don't know what's going to happen? Often what happens with stories is we give away the ending at the beginning of the story. We give the cookies away at the beginning. At the beginning. (laughs) And so there's no reason to read further. One way to think about tension that has been helpful for me as I've coached writers and have thought about in my own writing is Is there a question that runs through the story that is begging to be resolved? Because if you have a question that's begging to be resolved, then the reader is going to want to know how in the world are they going to resolve that? I've got to know. And so if you can think of your stories in terms of a question that needs to be answered, that's one way to create tension in your storytelling. If you just have information, then chances are there really isn't a question to be resolved. You're really good at saying, okay, what is the question that needs to be answered in the story? But also, how do you re-raise tension? Let's say you're writing chapter two and you bring chapter two to the end. If you've resolved some tension in chapter two, how are you going to re-raise that tension in chapter three? Do you do that at the end of chapter two? Do you introduce something that creates new tension? This is even true with a lot of nonfiction books that we've done. If you're going to keep somebody's interest for 250 pages, you have to raise, resolve, raise again, all sorts of tension throughout that book, or else it's just simply, it just isn't worth turning the page. It's just a bore. This is a really important one. It's kind of hard. It's a hard one to evaluate in some ways. Again, the best way sometimes is to get feedback from somebody who goes, you know, after this, you kind of lost me. I just wasn't there anymore. It might be painful to hear that, but it's really helpful because you can go back and fix that. 
there's such a gift in having honest feedback as difficult it is as it is. All right, our final question, number seven. And Dave, I'm going to have to ask you about this one because I thought we covered it already, but there is a nuance <laughs> to it. Are too many of my sentences the same length or too much of one thing? So what do you mean by that? And how is that different than punctuation? I added this in as we did the script for this episode. And the one on the third point was had to do with more of punctuation. And punctuation does affect, obviously, sentence length. In this one, I, I was thinking about going just a little bit deeper or broader. I'm not sure which direction we're going here. And, and just talk about more of cadence and voice. If you have too many compound sentences, your writing really slows down. If you have too many short sentences, your writing is it's choppy. Clippy. Yeah, yeah it's, it, yeah, it's clippy. That's a good way to say it. So I don't think we need to spend too much time on this, but it really is important that most writers, and I'm this way and you're this way, we want to have a voice. And each of our voices is not going to be the same. And you're going to have a much different voice because you're more literary in many ways in the way you write than I am. I have more of a spare. Um, I do write in shorter sentences. It just has to do with my writing style. So that's okay to have a different style. But I just think as we're developing our voice and we look back on the work that we're doing, and this is again, revision and self-editing, are our sentences all the same length? And are we really working towards developing our own voice? And that has to do with sentence length. And you'll notice some people use prepositional phrases a lot. Some people use gerunds at the beginning of their sentences a lot. So for instance, looking at the Valley of Wildflowers, he was wistful for a day when when things were simpler, whatever. And that's a gerund. You start out with an ING and lots of people start out their sentences with lots of gerunds, right? That's just, there's their writing. So again, the point is, if you're prone to use a certain style of sentence structure, then just be aware of it and try to vary it because it's going to yes. create rhythm. And I love the gerund illustration because if you're doing a lot of gerunds, it does kind of drag, gets draggy. And it, it, it's, it does slow down the reader. Again, you can, it's not that you never use a gerund. There are times you use a gerund. It's just if you're using it all the time, it should be a signal to you that you need to begin to mix up your, the style of sentences that you're writing. I love these seven questions because there's seven questions that I'm always asking myself without even realizing I'm asking myself. I think it's because you and I come from an editorial background where we've edited a lot of people's work. but it's, it's just kind of good to have that checklist in your mind. And maybe you focus on one thing to start with. Maybe you focus just on sentence structure and varying sentence structure. And then once you get a handle on that, you move to punctuation. And once you get a handle on that, maybe start really delving into those cliches and how can you eliminate those and freshen up your writing. So you don't have to look at it as an all or nothing, but maybe take it piece by piece and try to develop in one area because you don't become a great writer overnight. We're all developing, you and I too, Dave. We're grinding, trying to improve every time we lay down a sentence. So we hope you're encouraged by this. I certainly am. I've encouraged myself. You've encouraged me, Dave. <laughs> well, I was thinking about the one thing I would take away from this, just myself, is the one on, are my stories tension-filled? Am I, do my stories have tension? That just that just is a good reminder to me as I'm thinking about some things, some other pieces that I'm working on. 
So that's the one thing I'm going to take away from this and, and try to apply it as I, as I revise my manuscripts. All right. Shall we turn to our words of the episode? I was doing that example of the, of the whimsical flower and I thought of a poppy. And so I started to Google poppies, images of poppies. And then lo and behold, there was a poem by Ted Hughes, the great mid-century poet who was married to Sylvia Plath called The Big Poppy. So of course I had to go read it because I'm like, of course he probably uses even better language than I do to describe what a poppy looks like. And it's a, it's a pretty long poem, but, and I just created an excerpt from here, but in it was a word that I did not know. And it's one of those things, unless you know what the word means, then the poem really means nothing. So here is a stanza from the poem. Already her dark pod is cooking its drug. Every breath imperils her. Her crucible is falling apart with its own fierceness. A fly cool rests on the flame fringe. Soon she'll throw off her skirts, withering into vestal afterlife. Vestal is the word, which is a great word. And crucible is also a good one, but I'm not going to go into that one. I'm going to focus on vestal. And vestal refers to the mythological virginal priestess of Vesta, who were important in Roman religion. And so the word has come to mean chaste or pure. And so I'm not going to get into what this entire poem means, but it's just an observation how Hughes uses this, this kind of sensual language leading up to the word vestal, right? There's breath and there's fierceness and it's cooking and it's throw off her skirt. It's very kind of impassioned and passionate. And then you get to this word vestal, which is a, is a shocking kind of antonym to all of that. So what I love about poetry is it really forces you to think in image-driven ways. And I think that that can really enhance your writing. So Vestal is a word. It refers to a mythological virginal priestess of Vesta who were important in Roman religion. And the word has come to mean chaste or pure. You always have words that I honestly have never heard of. I've never heard of the word Vestal. I hadn't either, which is why I looked it up because I'm like, I'm, I need to know this word if I'm going to understand this poem. That poem is just amazing. The yeah. visual is so amazing on that. Yeah, it's great. And the what language, yeah. So withering into vestal afterlife, I, I think it means when a poppy dies, the seeds go back into the ground and it has this afterlife and kind of this rebirth. So it's really kind of a beautiful image in my mind. Withering into Vestal Afterlife. My goodness, I could never write that in a million I years. I know. Gosh, you wonder, I'm sure you spent hours coming up with that. <laughs> What's your word of the episode? Okay, so my, my word of the episode is, is pretty uh, meaningless compared to yours. I've Mine's, never heard of this word, though, Dave. It's squib. The word is squib. And so as a noun, it means a small firework that burns with a hissing sound before exploding. So I guess as you think about fireworks, you know, before, you know, July 4th, which is coming up here soon in the summer, or it also can meet a short piece of satirical writing as a Mm. noun. Mm -hmm. So, but as a verb, I think most of us, if we have heard the word, we think of it in football where he squibbed the ball. So it means you kick it only a short distance. Don't, you don't put your full leg into it. You, it's a squib. Kind of like when you're doing a, a kick trying to fake out the other team. And instead of doing a long kick, you you kick a squib and and you try to get them to make a mistake and maybe fumble the ball and you get the ball back. So it's it, you know, we decided to squib the kick would be a way to use that. So squib. Well, the, that's a word that I've 
part in none of the three <laughs> uses. So I'm going to be excited to use it come the 4th of July. Well, that was a great episode. But Dave, before we sign off, can you talk a little bit about what our listeners can find on YouTube? So we have a YouTube channel and it is a great YouTube channel. And so the way to find it is you simply search for Journey 66 Writing for Publication. You need that full word, journey or phrase, Journey 66 Writing for Publication, and you'll find some great videos, short clips, videos on memoir writing and other types of writing, but they're really, really practical and they are bite-sized. So you don't have to watch a half hour of a video to get some good content. They're just really condensed, helpful, practical tips on writing. So jump on YouTube, the Journey 66 Writing for Publication channel. Hopefully you'll find some things that you can, that can help benefit your writing. Well, are we going to squib this episode? I am Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write. 